changing culture and having a successful company aren't necessarily the same thing. Hey, welcome to Trapital. I'm your host, Dan Runcie. This is your place to gain insights on the business that shapes music, media, and culture. We dive deep into the companies and moguls who start the trends that shape the rest of the business world. You're about to listen to a deep dive on Pandora. This company had a 3-1 lead in online music. A 3-1 lead. It wasn't that long ago that Pandora was the place to go to set your playlist And everyone in the party could ride out, relax, because you knew that that algorithm was going to play something that you were going to want to hear next. But unfortunately, that wasn't all what music listeners really wanted. And Pandora wasn't able to maintain that lead. And we talk about how we get there, what happened, and what happened after the fact as well. We start this story in the late 90s with the Music Genome Project, Savage Beast Technologies, and more. We talk about how Pandora eventually came to be, the legal challenges, the battles on Capitol Hill, the battles with the music industry, and how we got to where Pandora is today. I'm joined by Tati Sirisano, friend of the podcast and an analyst at Media Research, and we go deep in this one. This was a fun one. I hope you enjoy it. So come, let's rewind and revisit that era where Pandora was the culture, what happened, and why things didn't quite work out the way he expected it to. I'm joined by Tati Sirisano to talk about Pandora. I'm excited for this one. Yeah, me too. It's good to be back. What was your first memory of using Pandora? I remember being really excited about Pandora. I think it launched around the time I was in middle school, and I was pretty obsessed with music discovery. And I think I had kind of exhausted the methods of reading music blogs and like talking to my friends and all these things. And the idea of algorithmic recommendations and this music genome project, like the name alone, like sounded so incredible, which is funny because of course now we expect algorithms to recommend things to us and like every single thing that we engage with online. But at the time it felt really exciting. And I also remember like the thumbs up, thumbs down feature being really exciting, (laughs) but I also equally remember the frustrations with it, to be honest, like running out of skips, feeling like even if I discovered an artist that I liked, you couldn't necessarily keep listening to them because you could go to their station, but then Pandora would play you other music. So I remember being really excited about it, but also a little bit frustrated. What about you? The first feeling was excitement. I don't remember the exact year, but I remember the blue background on the screen, you could pick the exact song or artist you wanted to listen to. And then you got something else else predicted off of that. And you're just like, wait, what? Really? Oh, so this is my own personal thing that I have. And like you said, I remember the thumbs up. I remember only getting six skips per hour or something like that. So, but at the time it did feel restrictive, but this was also when everything around technology felt quite restrictive more so than it did today. But it was definitely exciting. And I, didn't necessarily know where it was going, but this was something that was quite popular at a party or something else you were going to when someone was like, oh, just put on Pandora, see what happens. Because this was still before on-demand music streaming took off. It was really before there was a true set place where people would have the playlist of things they wanted to have that you can just regularly access a constant stream. Sure, because I feel like at this stage, there was still a lot of people that had a mix of iTunes songs that they may have had, or some songs they may have bought from other services, or maybe some songs that they had downloaded through piracy, some of the other platforms that we had discussed in our 
Napster episode not too long ago. So Pandora really hit at the perfect time. Yeah. And when you think about it, the concept of music discovery in that way was still pretty new. Like, um, I think YouTube was probably the only other comparable thing, like going down YouTube rabbit holes and discovering artists that way, maybe. But other than that, it was like you listen to songs on the radio and then you also had like iTunes, but that wasn't really a vehicle for discovery. Like the whole concept of music discovery in this, in this way was, was new. And that was really exciting. And I, I was trying to remember even, and I, and I sadly can't, I know that there were artists that I discovered on Pandora, but I don't remember who they were. I don't know if you remember any specifics. I don't remember anyone that I discovered necessarily, but I do remember putting in an artist and then it was almost a game to see how long until yeah. I was going to see another song from that same artist. I feel like for me, I was recommending or at least suggesting a lot of artists that were quite popular, whether it was in the 90s or later. Let's say I would have put on a song by Tupac. It probably would have given me something by Dr. Trey later. It probably would have given me right. something by someone else that was in this West Coast hip hop area. And I think that's probably a good place to transition a bit to talk about how this company came to be and where this idea came from. You mentioned it earlier, this music genome project, which is a whole play on words from the human genome project, which was a landmark yet controversial for many reasons, scientific thing that was popular in the 90s. And they wanted to be able to create this for music. Tim Westergen, who ended up becoming one of the founders of Pandora, originally they were developing this technology they ended up getting the trademark for it as well and it was based off this concept of each song has hundreds of genes that were different attributes that a song could be ascribed to whether it's the gender of the singer of the song or the way that the vocals were with the backgrounds or if there were certain attributes so everything was coded in this way to be this predictable type of thing and this is of course something that's quite commonplace now when algorithms drive nearly everything we listen to but in the late 90s this was huge and this was the foundation for savage beast technologies they didn't quite have a business model at the time but they knew that this technology was going to be something groundbreaking. And they, what's really amazing to me is that they did this all analog. Like they were hiring people to listen to dozens of CDs a day and write in an Excel spreadsheet what the musical attributes were, which must have just taken an enormous amount of time. And it's also interesting because we think of algorithmic recommendations today as sort of like, it's almost like the dark side. It's like, oh, this is all computer and it's no human input. But what they were doing was kind of all human input, which is really interesting. Yeah, the manual process is the part that's mind boggling, right? Because I think when we think about the algorithms and everything that does this today, it's all machine learning. The fact that you did this manually and they had this whole system where even for different genres of music, there were different genes. Like I believe that hip hop slash electronica was one genre that was categorized and there were 150 genes for that versus pop music and rock music may have had more or less. So they went manually with each of these things and really listened to all of the music breakdowns. It almost reminded me of the same way that you may listen to a episode of Song Explorer or a podcast like that, that's really breaking down each element of the song. Well, that was the foundation of the business that these folks had launched. And just to be clear on the founders, it was Tim Westergren, it's uh, Will Glazer and John Kraft. And then they started the company here in the in the Bay Area. 
Yeah, that's honestly looking, thinking about that sounds like a fun job. <laughs> Give me music to listen to and, you know, find the musical attributes for. Sounds cool. Sign me up. But they, they originally thought that they would sell this product to other businesses, right? It wasn't supposed to be a consumer proposition. Right. The whole thing was trying to find different kiosks or different places to have it. And they had tried to have in-store operations, whether it was at Best Buy or at uh, Sam Goody or some of your more local places that you would listen to music and then you would be able to see it and test it out there. But it just didn't quite find that product market fit. It didn't quite find the base there. And again, this was also a bit of a tough time in the industry as well, because there's a few things going on. This is at the height of Napster and everything happening there. So even when they were searching for funding and trying to get support for different things, it was quite tough for them. And this is something that Tim had talked about in a few different settings, because the company Savage Beast Technologies had initially gotten venture capital before the dot-com bubble. As you mentioned, it started in 1999. But after that, it became quite difficult. He struggled and he claimed that he was rejected by over 300 VCs. And by 2001, Savage Beast Technologies runs out of money and they had 50 people on the team and he had to keep the team from quitting. And he ended up using his own credit card, going into hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to pay for the payroll to keep the folks on the staff. And in a 2015 talk that he actually gave at HustleCon, someone asked him, hey, if you could go back in time, pretend that we were the people that were your employees, what did you say to them to convince them to stay on board, even though there was no future in sight? And he, this is a paraphrase quote, but this is what he said at the conference. He said, we all know that what we have created is unique and it's solving a gigantic problem. No one on earth is going to do what we've done. And when you use this product, we all know how magical it is. It will find its home. Everybody on the planet loves music. There are millions of musicians who produce great music and they can't find each other. When this thing finally finds its home, it's going to change culture. And how many times in your life do you have a chance to do that? That's what this is all about. And that was his rallying cry. I feel like I would have, I would have, I would have believed him. <laughs> like if I was around when the first real music recommendation system of this kind was being built, I think, yeah, it would have felt like this has such a potential to be culture changing. So inspiring. <laughs> I mean, I agree. You just think about how landmark everything was with Napster. And even though there was no business as we broke down in the last episode that we did together, this is something that does very much have potential. The business still wasn't quite there. And we will get into the business model and some of the decisions that Pandora made. But this is an important time because by 2002, Tim is now CEO of this company. He was CEO from 2002 to 2004. They're trying to figure things out. They're trying to make it work, but eventually things change for the fate where they are able to end up getting outside funding. They're able to get funding, but the company that comes in wants to change things. This is where the shift then starts coming in with radio, where they now have the idea to say, hey, let's use this technology and let's get in the radio space. And one of the attractive reasons why they wanted to get into radio is because the rates at the time for playing music were quite low. Radio, terrestrial radio specifically, 
they didn't necessarily have to pay out that much in order to pay the music and one to pay for the music that they were playing. And one of the arguments that Pandora's founders and investors had was that you're now able to do this, but you're able to personalize it for all of these people and you should be able to pay the same rates. So they did that. They hired an outside CEO who was initially president of eLoans and before that had ran marketing at Saturn back when Saturn was just starting as a car company. So it was a bit more of the let's get a quote unquote polished CEO in the room, have them in place. And then from there, that's when Pandora Music, as we know it, started in 2004. Another interesting tidbit that will probably come up later is that when they launched it, they initially wanted to actually do it as a subscription service is what I understand. But there wasn't really enough demand for that, maybe because the appetite for paying for digital subscriptions wasn't really there yet. People were used to listening to the radio or downloading music for free on Napster. Like there wasn't this idea of, of, of paying a subscription. So they sort of couldn't make that work. And so they went the ad supported route. And in order to afford to, to keep that business going, they came up with this idea, like you said, of uh, using the, the radio model. Yeah. And I do think that it made sense for them to do that because the rates that that were being charged, it was there were some rates that were set right around to 1990 in the mid 90s. So it was set from this 1998 to 2005 timeframe. That's how radio works it, where there's a set amount of years where they have the rates. But as the internet's growing and evolving, this is where legislation and different things start to change. And Pandora's whole plan in a lot of ways ends up getting blown up to some extent because they, and by they, I mean the powers that be that are controlling these things. It's a combination of your collection agencies. It's a combination of Congress and other different parties in Capitol Hill. They end up raising the rates up to 50%, meaning that that is the royalty rate. So half of the revenue that Pandora then gets, they have to pay out. Now, of course, this is a much lower rate than what a company like Spotify and others are currently paying for music that's streamed on their platforms. But that wasn't the case that Tim and the other founders and leaders of the company wanted to push. And this is especially at the time, I mentioned that new CEO, Joe Kennedy, that was in there, they were aggressively trying to make the case that this should be treated as radio. And I think if this was treated as radio, it would have been a fundamentally different business, both from having a lower cost structure and a lot less time because the Pandora leadership team spent quite a bit of time at Capitol Hill trying to make a public push and trying to make inroads to make the case for why its race should be that way. And even some of the grassroots campaigns that Pandora tried to do both with its customers and people that were music lovers, but also with artists as well. But not all of those necessarily worked out to its advantage. I mean, they literally tried to buy a radio station as part of that push, right? They tried to buy a radio station, and I think it was South Dakota, yep. to try and get more preferential rates. Um, and they weren't able to do that in the end, but they ended up having to kind of contort in weird ways to try and fight this. Another one was that Pandora ended up limiting the number of hours that uh, you could listen to music per month. And that was like short lived. I think it only lasted a few months, but it was because these rates were too high and they couldn't afford it. So the whole like, let's go the route of online radio at the start felt like a genius loophole. But 
so many, it actually ended up causing so many challenges for them. It did. There was in 2007, this quote here, this was from a well done um, reporting from Vice about Pandora and its history. In 2007, a federal panel tweaked copyright rules so that web-based radio operators suddenly had to pay double its royalty rates while terrestrial radio scraped by without having to incur any of those fees and satellite radio got away with a lighter rate. So that was part of the frustration too. It wasn't just that terrestrial radio was being treated as its own thing. It was that here you had satellite radio, which also blew up in the 2000s as well, but they didn't have to pay nearly the level of rates that Pandora had to. So they definitely felt like they were being picked on and being singularly targeted to some extent, but that was the reality. That's where things were. And this is also around the same time too, that I think Tim and some of the other founders began to lean into using the public to try to rally support where there would be different comments. And in 2007, he had um, admitted to the Washington Post, this is from an interview that they were approaching a quote unquote, pull the plug type of decision. And this was going to be a last stand for them. So even though there was promise, even though there was an opportunity, it was quite a tumultuous up and down experience for them in the 2000s. I think the other thing that was particularly frustrating about the CRB ruling was Pandora launched just before that ruling. So they were subject to that law, but they weren't there for the the negotiations where they might have had a say or been able to argue in the conversations that led up to that decision, if that makes sense. So they were too late to be part of the discussions, but then they ended up affected very strongly by this ruling. Agreed. And it's funny because this is also around the same time that Spotify was launching, at least launching in Sweden and launching in the UK. It did take several more years to come over to the US, but at least when it got its start in Scandinavia, it did take time to be able to get the licensing. But I think one of the bigger challenges and one of the bigger shifts is that Pandora was quite focused on trying to make sure that it got what it believed to be its fair pricing and its fair rate for the music that it wanted to be able to stream versus Spotify's approach more so at the time was to take the less favorable rates, whatever they happen to be, and use that gain momentum, try to get support more broadly. And then once they got to have enough size, then they start to flex the leverage a bit more. And it was definitely a bit of an opposite approach to the way that Pandora had done things. And I get it. It's very tough, as we know, not just for Pandora, but for a number of these companies to build a sustainable business in a lot of ways. But that was one of the things that I do think it just ended up taking up quite a bit of time and it just shifted the entire focus of the company's strategy. Totally. And it was sort of like Pandora fought so hard to make this online radio strategy work. And in the end, they, I mean, we'll get to it, but they sort of did win in that they, they were able to negotiate, I think, a lower, a lower rate or get the CRB to kind of change things. But then they ended up locked into that structure. And meanwhile, the rest of the industry is kind of moving to on-demand streaming and they're still in this online radio phase. So it's, they sort of spent so much time fighting for this but then once they had it, it, it restricted them from evolving with the rest of the industry. Right. It was like they won the battle, but there was this broader war going on, if you will, about right. where, where, <laughs> everything, where everything is going. But then by the time the early 2010s come around, 
the fate does start to change because this is when I think you and I are both talking about, okay, this is when the service became a bit more ubiquitous. You're starting to see it in different places. What do you think changed for them that made the service really start to take off around this time? That made Pandora start to take off? Yeah. Around 2010. Yeah, because I feel like, at least from my perspective, I feel like that early 2010s era from like 2010 to let's say 2013, it was right before Spotify really took off in the US. Mm -hmm. But I feel like online and broadband and internet had really developed to the extent where one, they were able to get traction Two, there was clearly enough demand and interest for this. And Pandora did get a bit of that zeitgeistiness where they were able to really start to acquire more users. And I think that the monthly active users ended up peaking around 2013 to 2014 to just over 80 million users that were using the service regularly, but it was a bit of a climb to get there. But I feel like it was those couple of years before then when things had really started to turn for them. Yeah, I think you kind of nailed it, that it was the like broadband internet availability and like on mobile as well, so that people could stream things in high quality. And it was that we hadn't we didn't have that many other options yet. Like Spotify had started to ramp up, but it wasn't nearly as dominant as it would be in like 2013. Pandora kind of benefited from that crucial window. And also just, um, we haven't really brought in the impact of the iPhone, um, which was another part of this. Like people were using music streaming apps on their phones, which made a big difference. Whereas before Pandora was kind of restricted to, to desktop use. So uh, I think that had an impact as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's probably the big thing that changed it, because as we'll talk about eventually, one of the reasons this company became attractive to other companies is because it had a place in mobile and no different than whether it's Uber or Airbnb or Instagram or all these businesses that rose because of the mobile technology and what the iPhone was able to create. Pandora was in that same bucket too. And I think around this time too, because of the introduction of mobile, it just fit the experience more where it was on the go. It was the same way that everything else already was. And sure, if you owned an iPod, you could put it on shuffle and go, but it's already stuff that you own. There wasn't as much discovery in that type of way. And I think they were able to do that. And I think one of the reasons why on-demand streaming eventually ended up winning over, and we'll get to that, but I feel like digital music had kind of been in this evolution of getting closer and closer to what people actually wanted because of course you had cds yeah. technology goes and disrupts all of that then you have piracy and you have itunes and itunes is of course revolutionary as you and i've talked about but still having to pick each individual song need to download each individual song there's some friction there even if you download your songs illegally there is still some friction there so what pandora does it gets you one step closer to having a steady stream of being able to get the music that's there. It didn't quite get all the way there until later, but that's one of the other reasons why I think it was able to take off the way it did. Yeah, but it was always going to be that sort of interim mode, right? Like it was always gonna be the step that brings us to on-demand streaming. So it, it was able to enjoy that, that rise during that interim period, but it was always gonna be an interim period. I think that was kind of the problem. Yeah. Because if we're looking from a timing perspective, it was right around 2014, I would say, is when things started to turn. Because at this point, 
the company had been public for a couple of years. The company goes public in 2012, I believe it's a $2.6 billion IPO. Now that may not seem like a big number, but at the time that was a huge number just with where a lot of consumer exits were and it was hitting the company right at the perfect timing. I feel, I think the share price was right around $16 or so when it initially had went public. And then in 2014, that's when we hit that peak of having over 80 million monthly active users. And then in 2015 is when I think things start to change a bit because I, there's a few things that happen here. You start to see a few different acquisitions that Pandora makes, and that's when they realize that, okay, we may be on top and we may be having our high stock price, we may be having our streaming, but there's a few things that are changing here. One, we're seeing Spotify now get much more traction with where it is, but, and this is why they, they acquire radio. Radio is a much more nascent music streaming service, but they acquire that for $75 million. But they also acquire Ticketfly, the ticketing platform for, I believe it was $450 million. And then they also acquire the New Wave Sound, the uh, Data Insights platform as well. And each of those different companies are no longer under the umbrella, whether they've sold off or whether they had shut down. But this was the Pandora's attempt to say, hey, we may still have a quote unquote leap, but we see where things are going. And it felt like a bit of a kitchen sink strategy to try to capture market share in the best way that it could. Yeah. And, and some of those things sort of made more sense than others. Like I feel like with radio, with that acquisition, it was sort of moving them towards inevitably creating an on-demand subscription product. So that kind of made sense. But then with ticketing, on the one hand, it, it makes a lot of sense with Pandora's whole focus on discovery. So you discover an artist and then maybe you go see them live, but it was missing the fandom that would be between those two things because you couldn't discover more about the artist because you couldn't choose to listen to only them, right? You had to go somewhere else to do that. So yeah, it was a bit of a, like you said, a kitchen sink <laughs> strategy. Just see what works. Right. And it's something I've thought about a lot because they did end up introducing the on-demand music streaming capabilities, obviously, first from acquiring radio, but then launching Pandora Premium, which gave you the opportunity to do this. But it was a very different product in a lot of ways. This was $5 a month, so it was much cheaper than what Spotify was positioned at. And the user experience didn't exactly transfer in the same way. And they were only able to get around 5% of the users at the time to upgrade to the paid service, which was very different from Spotify at the time, which this is right around like 2014, 2015 timeframe where Spotify was able to get at least a quarter of its users at the time to be paying for the paid music service. Now, I believe that number is much different for Spotify, but at the time that was huge because here, not only is your competitor already years ahead of you on this, but they're charging twice as much and they're able to pull in a 5x higher percentage of their audience to use their paid platform. So that means that Pandora, from a business model perspective, was so much more reliant on advertising revenue than ideally being able to have more steady subscription, monthly recurring revenue that could continue to not just ensure the stickiness, but also keep the users on the platform coming back. Yeah, I think what happened there was probably that 
Spotify ended up getting all of the Pandora users that wanted more, that wanted an on-demand experience. So they shifted to Spotify, whereas Pandora was left with all the users that were never going to pay anyway. You know what I mean? Like they were the people that were not going to switch to Spotify, but it was because they just didn't want to pay for a subscription. So they weren't going to do it on Spotify or Pandora or anybody else. So they kind of got stuck with, um, with that audience that was just probably never going to pay. Right. It was a much more casual audience and it was an audience that was likely getting their music from multiple sources. And they were starting to use Pandora as the destination spot less and less, because at this point, as you mentioned, when Pandora was first taking off and doing its thing, YouTube music was much more nascent. But by that point, YouTube and Vivo had already combined to make sure they had all the videos there. I think it was towards the end of 2009 when they had all of the music videos that were able to then come onto the YouTube platform. And that just grew things from there. And that company turned from being in its own way at one point being the bane of the music industry's frustration to now becoming the company that's the second largest supplier of revenue if you will second to spotify from what they give i think it's around six million or six billion dollars or so annual at least on the recorded music side and pandora just was never quite able to capture that piece of it so i agree there i think the other thing too is there was a bit of a PR challenge that I don't think necessarily worked in the favor of Pandora either, because the founders and especially Tim Westergren, he was making the pitch to go to whether it was Capitol Hill and other places to say, hey, come support me in my goal to lower the royalty rates so that we can add more value to you as the end consumer and the end artist. But People didn't necessarily see it that way. They hear that and they think, so you want me to help you pay me less? There was pushback from groups like the NAACP that had reached out and said, this is going to hurt artists, specifically black artists on Motown and labels like that because they already didn't have the most favorable rates in the world being signed to that record label. I'm talking more specifically about the 60s and 70s Barry Gordy heyday of Motown there. And now you want me to try to lower this further. So there was this whole positioning thing. And the irony of it is that legendary groups like Pink Floyd and others did not want to give their music to Pandora, but at the same time, they were licensing it to Spotify. So there was this whole narrative there that was quite challenging for them to be able to break through because Sure, they may have been justified in trying to prove that, hey, we should be treated the same way as radio, but that wasn't the public narrative. The public narrative was, so you want to pay the artists less now. That's what you're saying. And it was a very tough thing to try to overcome. Yeah. And on that note, when they tried to launch the subscription product, then they did have to work with the labels and publishers and they kind of had to repair that relationship, right? Because they had started their entire journey by figuring, making their whole business model about going around them, about not having to ask the, the labels and publishers for permission. Um, so I think that also was one of the things that maybe slowed them down. And I feel like the more that we do these company breakdowns and the more that you do them, the more we realize that so much is really about timing. Like so much is about timing. I mean, you think about even with this, how I was saying earlier, how Pandora actually started with trying a subscription model, but it wasn't really the right time for it. And then when they did launch it, it was too late. So, so much of it is just timing. Yeah. There's a bit of the 
early mover advantage can often have here, with this, which is what you're saying, because if you look at Pandora as the company that did have the 3-1 lead, the company that was out in front of all the others, and then Spotify comes through, eats its lunch, and then becomes the dominant platform. We had seen that happen with MySpace and Facebook. You saw that happen in the 80s with Betamax and VHS. You see this time and time again, where the initial platform that goes out, they have to face a lot of the punches and take a lot of the hits that the companies that then come maybe a few years after they see the challenges that the other company went through they also see the holes the other company isn't addressing and then they go about things their way and that's not to say that spotify strategy was based off of the holes that daniel Eck may have seen in pandora's but i'm sure he was aware of what's happening there and i think we've seen this again where that's where the timing is just so prescient because as the opposite there Spotify did come in with the perfect timing and even the timing of the US launch to have things delayed and how the mid 2010s was just the perfect time to be able to kick things off. And even though we're only talking about a few years difference from Spotify kicking things off in the US to then Pandora launching its Pandora premium service, it's just a few years, but those few years are critical. If you love Trapital, you should check out what our friends at Disgraceland have cooking up. It's an award-winning music and true crime podcast with a brand new season all about Wu-Tang Clan. Episodes about RZA, Method Man, Raekwon, Ghostface Killer, fighting for their lives and getting involved in all sorts of stuff. Listen, if you know anything about hip-hop, you know that these are some wild boys. And Disgraceland does what it does best, and it dissects and breaks down the stories behind the musicians that we've grown and loved. They've done deep dives and covered many artists like Fleetwood Mac, Tupac, Grateful Dead, Billie Holiday, Charles Manson, Taylor Swift, Rolling Stones, Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love, Amy Winehouse, and more. But this season is the first serialized one that they've done on the full story of Wu-Tang Clan over 10 episodes. New episodes come out every Tuesday and Thursday. Follow and listen to Disgraceland for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I think the other thing that's sort of different about this is with like the MySpace and Facebook example, like Facebook basically made a better version of MySpace. It was like the same sort of thing, but different. And I think the difference with Pandora and Spotify is Pandora's functionality of recommendations, it was always a feature and not a product. Like Spotify didn't just make a better Pandora, they made Pandora a feature of a larger product. And I think that was kind of the downfall, or I guess downfall is too strong a word, but that was kind of what um, held Pandora back from competing. And it was even something that they, they must have in some way known because when they started their business, this wasn't supposed to be a product at all. It was supposed to be something that they sold to other businesses as a feature. Um, so I think that was kind of one of the big learnings or big takeaways for me about this is that this whole sort of age old question of, is it a product or is it a feature? Agreed. That's a good point of how this started. This started as technology in search of a solution. They had this cool thing, this very nifty thing that they built. How do we sell this? We tried to sell it to media play and circuit city and Best Buy. Okay. That didn't quite work. Okay, let's go through, back to the drawing board. 
it looks like there's an opportunity with radio because of how low the royalty rates are. Okay, let's try that. Well, boom, we have no control over that. And now not only do they raise the rates, but they want to treat us differently than they are treating Sirius XM and how they're treating terrestrial radio. So now let's see what we can do and see what we can grab. We've seen this be a challenge so many times. And of course, I understand that it's easy to say these things in hindsight, but that's exactly what it is. And by the time it got to the point where, like you said, they have this cool feature, features are great, but again, because there isn't necessarily the true defensible business around it, it was hard to have the stickiness. And that's where it's completely different because when something better came along, all those users were ready to go check out something else versus with the relationship they had with Spotify, it's a completely different product and a completely different relationship. And now it's a business that does have one of the lowest churns of any streaming subscription product, whether it's audio or video. And I think a lot of that, part of that's due to pricing, but part of that's also due to building a true business that is around this. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I can sort of see in hindsight, but don't know if I would have recognized at the time is how with Pandora, they were making a better radio rather than going beyond radio. Like Pandora kind of assumed that radio was still going to be the future of how people were engaging with music, but the future went so far beyond it. And in some ways, I think that we needed to have that step in the middle. Like I was at Future Music Forum in Barcelona last week and um, my friend, uh, Caitlin Davies, was speaking on a panel and she was talking about how there's a reason that when iPhone came out with a camera, it still made a shutter noise when you clicked it. Like there's a reason why the first like calendars that were digital flipped open because it mimics the experience that you had and it helps you transition. So maybe Pandora was that, but it was always going to be a bit short-sighted in that it assumed that radio in some form was still going to be the future when the future was actually something completely different. Right. It's like that Henry Ford talking point that people always go back to about if you ask people in what the 1910s what they would have wanted to improve, they would have said they wanted faster horses. That's exactly right. where this we are. Pandora was a faster horse. <laughs> yeah. And it was still revolutionary and, you know, and all that, but it was in the end just a faster horse. And just thinking about the evolution of music, the things that are the groundbreaking technologies, the groundbreaking platforms are often started because there is some product out there that is meant to be like, whoa, never would have thought about this before. And the challenge is that there are several technology platforms that have came that have tried to do that, but just didn't work. But that's how, whether it's the iPod or the iPhone, that whole mentality around let's build the thing that people never thought that they would have wanted as well. or And, and that's essentially how, how you get there. And I think that as a company like Spotify and then eventually later on down the road, the digital stream providers were able to follow suit in that. And I think as well, just to go back to the point you said about timing, I think the latest that a company could have launched and gotten into online music the way that it did was probably the way that Apple Music had done it because they were already a little bit behind the curve. They were developing it, but they just didn't quite get there. But then they say, okay, well, Beats is working on a music streaming service. 
let's go acquire Beats by Dre. Of course, they had to pay a bit of a premium because of how popular the headphones are at the time, but that saved them at least a year's worth of time to then be able to launch Apple Music in the summer of 2015. And that helped them. And I do think that even though Apple Music never quite caught Spotify from a subscriber perspective, I think it's pretty close in the US or uh, Apple actually may have more in the US, but I still think Spotify may have more globally. But I think that was really one of the last times you're able to do it unless it's alternatively a product like Amazon, where they were just so ubiquitous with Prime everywhere else that it was a fairly, I don't want to say easy, but they were able to get in there. And I just don't think that Pandora either had the capital or the infrastructure to be able to have their entry into on-demand have the same type of response. Totally. Yeah. I mean, because you can maybe afford to make that kind of acquisition to speed the timeline if you're Apple, right? But it's a lot harder for everyone else. Agreed. At this point, we're getting into the middle of the 2010s. And then in 2016, Tim Westergren actually becomes CEO of Pandora again. And at this point, there's a few big things that happen because Sirius XM comes in the picture. They really see Pandora as an attractive asset because Sirius XM strong presence in cars and anywhere else that satellite radio is popular, but it hadn't quite cracked mobile yet. It hadn't necessarily gotten in there. And as you mentioned before, that was one of the reasons why Pandora did start to take off a bit after the adoption of the smartphone and this mobile and things being able to increase there. But depending on who you ask, several of the reports said that Sirius XM wanted to buy the company at the time, I believe is around like $15 per share, which was a premium over what it was being sold at at the public market. And Westergrid had declined that. This is from a report that was released uh, by Daniel Sanchez from um, Digital Music News. But then a few years later, Westergrid then ends up stepping down, or not a few years later, one year later in 2017, Westergrid ends up stepping down. And then at that point, the sale ends up happening where Pandora ends up getting sold to Sirius XM. I believe the number was $3.5 billion. You have $3.5 billion in 2018. And on paper, it was one of those things where it made sense. You know, Sirius XM had such a stronghold in a lot of ways over its market. This was going to be its introduction to mobile and getting into everything that Pandora had in its arsenal, but it just didn't quite happen in that way. I think there were certain things that improved, like ad revenue was able to increase in a lot of ways, but those monthly active users, unfortunately, continue to decline even after this acquisition. Yeah, I think you're right. There were a lot of things that made sense on paper. Like for SiriusXM, it was sort of almost as if Pandora would become like this uh, this catch for the churn from radio. Like as as people kind of evolved out of radio, then they would just kind of transition to Pandora. But I think it also tied Pandora forever to the radio world, just as it was kind of trying to go beyond that. So it, it, like, it made sense on paper, but I can also kind of see why it didn't necessarily lead to like this huge you know, revitalization of the brand or anything like that. Yeah, it was a really tough time because this was also around the time when one of the CEOs that was there, Roger Lynch, was in charge. And one of his things was he didn't use these words, but there was an aspect of accepting defeat or accepting that you didn't necessarily win the battle with 
music streaming, but he wanted to focus on audio overall, the audio potential that he saw that was there. That obviously now I think that is a pretty common thing we've heard from Spotify and other companies, but their whole, but his whole thought was that, okay, there's a few things. He wanted to focus on podcasting and he wanted to focus on other genres outside of hip hop because his thought, this is a quote from a article, I believe this was from uh, Rolling Stone in 2018. Amy Wang had wrote this one. She did a few good pieces on Pandora over the years, but she said, quote, this is from Lynch, quote, Spotify has more listeners than hip hop, but we would crush them in country. They just announced that their playlist, Hot Country, has passed 5 million listeners, while our country playlist has 63 million listeners. So there was a bit of the push to be like, hey, we have a slightly different population representative to what Spotify does. And then additionally, they also had introduced the podcast genome project as one of its opportunities to really try to get into podcasting the same way that it did with music. But I think, again, these two slightly missed the mark a little bit. I think the country piece of it missed the mark because it was a bit too early, similar to the other challenges you've said before. We're just now seeing country music really have its streaming renaissance, if you will, now in this 2021 to 2023 era where you know, Morgan Wallen's Last Night is the most popular, most streamed song of the year on several of these platforms or songs from Luke Bryan and things like that. So even if they had really tried to push country on streaming in, let's say, 2017, 2018, I think it still would have been a little bit early. And on the podcasting side of it, what they did get right was how Discovery and all those things were off. And I'm sure that there were similar gene codes and things like that that they could have done with podcasting to be able to predict what you would have wanted. But again, the machine learning and the algorithm was a bit more mature that it wasn't necessarily proprietary technology to be able to see that, okay, well, if you like the X podcast, then maybe you'll also like Y podcast as well. And that didn't necessarily take off in that same way either. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think one tidbit that kind of caught my eye was how with the Human Genome Project for podcasting, there was sort of this vision from Lynch where it was almost like creating personalized radio that also included the news that you get out of radio. So it was almost like you'd get like these personalized uh, headlines of the of, of your local area in addition to the personalized music aspect, which I actually think is is an interesting idea and could appeal more to maybe older populations and people in cars and and there there is maybe a market for that. Um, so I actually thought that that was a decent um, a decent idea. I don't know if it actually ever went anywhere, but that kind of caught my eye. Yeah, there's a bit of that. How do you personalize something like The Daily, which I think was a podcast that really only got popular yeah. a bit like later on in the podcasting game and, and things like that. And then there was also talks about getting involved with smart speakers and just trying to find other different areas of technology to be able to hit. I do think that that's a space that Amazon probably does better than anyone with the whole, hey, Echo, play whatever song or whatever it is, right? Just with the voice on demand thing. So yeah, it was tough to see because I do think there were a number of things that Lynch had called out that made sense. But again, the timing just wasn't quite there. Again, with the timing. <laughs> Lynch is probably one of the more unique CEOs, though, because I know, as you pointed out to me before we started recording, he also has a musical background. Uh, yes, I learned um, while researching that Lynch is in a band composed of all CEOs that is called The Merger. <laughs>
one really got me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I don't know if that's still the case, but I read that in an article and at the time, at, at some point that he was in this band and it did exist. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Amazing. Amazing. And with that, I do believe that the last few years of Pandora under the Sirius XM umbrella have been a bit interesting because I think there's a few things that they've tried and it may be a little bit easier to look at the company within the broader Sirius XM umbrella of where things were because Sirius XM had also made a strategic investment in SoundCloud back in 2020 for $75 million. And this was around the time where there was a little bit more public pressure around what the future of SoundCloud may be. So I think that Sirius was able to come in around that particular timing. And they were also able to acquire this company called AdWiz that was around the same time of the initial SiriusXM Pandora acquisition because they were really trying to double down on advertising revenue and just how to figure out how best to maximize that. But again, this is something that I think Spotify as well ended up doing better than them, just with some of the more advertising-driven platforms for podcasting and things like that that they were able to capture as well. So there were still moves that were being made, but the growth continued to go down. There was a some reporting from Music Business Worldwide that it showed that from the initial acquisition from SiriusXM of Pandora from 2018 down to 2021, they had lost 10 million uh, monthly active users. And that reported number in 2021 was at 55 million for its monthly active users, which is a, sh a strong cry away from where it was with yeah. the 80 plus million that it had had at its peak nearly 10 years ago. So there's been a few things that I say we'll hear every now and then. I know that there were a few podcast strategies and I'm remembering a few of these anecdotally from the early days of starting Capital. They had some partnership with Marvel to be able to have some of Marvel's content have an audio component to it, especially when podcasting was really starting to have a lot of its high growth phase. This was like right before the pandemic. I believe this was in 2019. I didn't necessarily see as much from that project come through. And then there was also an exclusive partnership they had with Drake for some exclusive content and ideas like that as well. Again, I didn't necessarily see as much of that develop either, but there were clearly big swings and big opportunities that were made to continue to make this company work. And I do think that being under the Sirius XM umbrella helped enable some of this, but all of these things can just be lumped under the umbrella of a little bit too late for even these things that may make perfect sense on paper. And I, and that's where I think the nuance comes where it's not like these moves don't make sense. You can follow them and anyone that would be in a CEO position trying to do this would have an uphill battle. And it's tough. I know that companies often look at the turnaround story that a company like Apple had in the coming from the dark days they had in the late 90s to then bouncing back thanks to music in a lot of ways in the 2000s. But those examples are just fewer and far between. And you never want to rule things out, but it's just very tough, especially just given the place that I think Pandora is in. Yeah. And none of these moves were things that its competitors couldn't just do as well. You know, like there was, there wasn't really a secret sauce, I guess. Yeah. And then additionally, a lot of the acquisitions that it had made, the company ended up selling. Uh, we mentioned the Ticketfly acquisition back in 2015. By 2017, 
it's that company was then sold to Eventbrite for $200 million. So it was sold at a loss there. The Data Insights company was shut down in 2021 and radio as well didn't necessarily continue under the Pandora umbrella in that way. So yeah, it was it was tough because again, like you mentioned, I think some of those acquisitions made a little bit more sense than others. But yeah, it's tough. I feel like we covered a number of the reasons that Pandora didn't necessarily succeed. I do think that timing, of course, one of them, there was lack of support, both from the record labels and the artists, a large emphasis of fighting battles on Capitol Hill, as opposed to this broader opportunity of seeing where music was going, started as a technology in search of a solution and continue to try to do that. And I think business model challenges overall, but is there anything else that you would largely group under why Pandora had struggled? I think that you pretty much covered it. Yeah, I think it was for all of those reasons, it was sort of like we said, always going to be this sort of interim step onto the next, but they weren't able to evolve with the rest of the industry because they were, you know, fighting battles on Capitol Hill and trying to lock themselves into this online radio business model and all these other things. So I think that you covered it. And I guess on the flip side, because this is something I know we talked about before we recorded too, what were some of those overlooked moves or what were some of those dark horse moves that Pandora had done that probably didn't get enough attention that likely got overshadowed because of everything else happening? Well, one thing that I learned while I was researching that I didn't know before was that, so when the iPhone came out, of course, it, it, it could be a big opportunity for something like Pandora because now you're able to get into people's phones but the first iteration of the iPhone didn't have non-native apps on it, right? It only had Apple's apps. So that kind of gave the iTunes store an edge. But then I, I think a year after the iPhone launched was when they were going to open up the app store where there could be non-native apps. And what I read was that Pandora spent that year jailbreaking iPhones so that they could tweak their app to be perfect and ready to go so that the day that the app store launched they were the only online radio app on there. That was <laughs> that was something I did not expect to find. And I don't know, maybe that is something that um, other companies have done or, or did at the time that weren't in music, but I thought that was kind of a smart move. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense because that's like one of those stories you often hear that's like, oh, what's the clever uprising thing that you did to get ahead? Or what's the thing that you did that's the, doing things that don't scale thing that you talk about the same way that you'll hear stories about like Airbnb founder, Brian Chesky going into some of these actual Airbnbs himself and taking the photos or getting the team to help like clean up, <laughs> like things like that. Like that's one of those stories yeah. that obviously didn't lead to this lasting success. But I do want to highlight that this is still a company that did have an IPO. They had a billion dollar exit. I think there are few and far between examples of this happening, and they did it even before music streaming was a thing. I'm actually working on something about this right now for Trapital's upcoming culture report, but if you look at the largest exits that have happened within the past 10 years for companies that are either solving problems in the music industry or music tech more broadly, most of them, once you take out record label acquisitions and publishing acquisitions, most of them are for streaming services. So for the fact that they were able to have a billion dollar exit over $2 billion back in 2012, even without having the on-demand streaming capabilities for consumer product is pretty 
groundbreaking and I think was pretty uh, memorable as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, and and I do think the other thing I want to highlight, I know we talked about it in the beginning, but the Music Genome Project was a good concept, a good idea. I think it was smart how they did it. it the timing of it made perfect sense. It's unfortunate that similar to Napster, similar to other products, a lot of those dot-com businesses were just a bit too early in general and more successful versions of them ended up coming. And now with machine learning and generative AI, a lot of those things can be done pretty turnkey, but that was huge. It was groundbreaking. And I think it was smart of them to try to figure out, hey, we do have this technology. How do we make it work? Unfortunately, the product market fit for that took some time to get there. And you could argue if they ever had it, I think there was a particular moment they did, but I think like any company, you do have to pivot. But that is one of the really smart groundbreaking things that I think that Tim Westergren and the rest of the team there, um, especially the people that came up with it, like John Kraft and Will Glazer do deserve credit for that. Totally. I mean, yeah, to their credit, the whole speech that Westergren gave of we're going to, we're going to change culture and blah, 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 that led people to keep working even when they weren't getting paid. I mean, he ended up being right in in that respect that it did change culture. It was groundbreaking. So um, those employees did, you know, did live up to that promise, even if it didn't eventually become as big as they wanted it to as a company, but as an idea, it it went far. Right. Because Pandora changed culture in the same way that Napster changed culture, but it's very different because I think there are successful companies in this music streaming space that didn't necessarily change culture in that way. I don't think that Amazon Music changed culture in any type of way. I think it has been a very smart business line. And I do think that the team there, you know, I've talked to people that have worked in that team past and present. I think they've done an amazing job and it's not an easy thing to do. A very, It's a good business. I don't know if it's necessarily changed culture in that way. It was a very smart thing for them to do. I think Apple Music did a few more innovative and culturally innovative things. So I think that they could probably have more of a case to be made for influencing culture, especially with some of the moves that Larry Jackson and the team had done there, especially with some of the hip hop artist partnerships. And then even now, just their involvement with um, the Super Bowl as the presenting or, or as a lead partner or the presenting sponsor, I don't know the exact terminology, but they're the lead sponsor for the Super Bowl. Things like that, I think, were there. Spotify definitely did. But it's one of those things where, yeah, they did achieve that. But changing culture and having a successful company aren't necessarily the same thing. Yeah, definitely. That's actually a really good point. <laughs> yeah. So that's something I'll definitely think think a lot about with that. And with this, it was interesting to think about just doing some research on where, of all the folks involved with uh, Pandora, where Tim Westergren um, is today. So after leaving Pandora, he left in 2017. Um, he had come out with interviews himself where he's talked even since this, where he's talked about some of the challenges of how Pandora had missed the mark on a few different things. But I think he had um, still stayed active. He wasn't necessarily in like in the public light nearly as much as he had been when he was with Pandora, but he was a venture partner at Coastal Adventures. He had run this company called Sessions. And according to his LinkedIn, he now um, started this company called Creator, which is CR, the number eight TR that was started earlier in 2023. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, the moves that he and 
others continue to make. It's interesting reading some of the reportings that that was done. There were definitely, I think, a number of people, whether it was journalists or others, that did have certain question marks about the work that he did. But I do think that there were others that were quite supportive. But clearly, whether it's after the big exit or any after the sales or things like that, this was a company that was clearly able to make success. And I'm sure that there's a lot of, you know, gray hair and late nights of frustration and things that come through. But you were able to do the exact thing that you set out to do. You did change culture with this product. And I do think that that's pretty pretty cool. Yeah. And I, on that note, I also appreciate how strikingly honest Westergren always has been and continues to be in talking about these businesses. Like he was very clear about what, where he think Pandora went wrong at the time. He talked openly to the Washington post about this is a pull the plug moment. Like he's talked about how with Pandora, the aim was to make a middle class of artists and that he failed. And that's what he tried to do again with sessions. And that's probably what he's continuing to try to do. So um, I think we do need, we do need more of that honesty. Um, I think that helps kind of drive the industry forward um, and learn from the things that don't work out the way we wanted them to. So I appreciate that as well. <laughs> yeah. Having honesty and it isn't just honesty. I think it's having enough self-contrition to be able to be like, all right, I didn't necessarily hit the mark on this thing that I tried yeah. to do. I think it can be very tough, especially for some of the more ego-driven or egocentric leaders that can often be leading companies that have this much influence where even if, because I know I've seen this myself, even when I'm doing research on different episodes, you'll read and listen to interviews from different CEOs or different leaders that were there at the same time. And they're saying conflicting things and things like that. And you're yeah. like, okay, well, who's presenting the revisionist history versus right. who has just a different point of view that could actually be legitimate in some ways. So that was one thing that did, that did stand out there. Um, I do think though, and I know we've said this point before, but the company that I think probably benefited the most from the, all of this was Spotify, because I do think that even though Spotify is a company that has taken more than its fair share of public criticism over a number of years, it being able to have some of that early support that it did, but then a company like Pandora taking a bit of those early hits, especially in the early 2010s, I think was something that worked out to its advantage. And I'm sure that there were learnings from how they went about it that, or, or how Pandora went about it that did inform the Spotify strategy. Yeah, and like I was saying before, I think Spotify needed Pandora or something like it to be the bridge to introduce people to the world of streaming without you know giving them everything and then show them what it could be like if you paid for a subscription. Like, I don't know going back to when Pandora tried to launch a subscription and it didn't work. Like, I think there always needed to be that interim, interim format or experience. Um, but it just ended up being Spotify that got to pick up the baton um, and Pandora that was kind of left behind. Right. And to that point that you mentioned earlier, this is why it was a great feature, but we just needed something else under there. It's a great feature to generate interest, to be able to capture something, but we just needed something else there. Almost in the same way that today, where a company like OpenAI has ChatGPT. Yes, it is very groundbreaking what this technology can do, and it kind of has this ooh-ah factor in the same type of way. But I do think that company is also building plenty of things underneath its structure to be able to make sure that the oohs and ahs and the wows don't stop at 
typing in these queries yeah. or typing in this thing into and then seeing what the output comes out as because there are there are a lot of similarities there yeah that's a good point absolutely and on that note do you have anything else on pandora before we wrap things up um i feel like we can't wrap things up without touching on how prophetic the name was because they called themselves pandora based on the sort of greek mythological tale about Pandora getting all these gifts from the gods and one of them is the gift of music. But of course, the end point of that story was that she opens the box and all of the consequences of those gifts come out and it kind of comes back to haunt her and and culture and and the world at large. And I feel like Pandora's box is kind of a a good good, uh, reference for what happened with Pandora and so much of the music industry where we see a big opportunity and we get excited about it, but we don't really think ahead to the second order consequences or things that we never could have predicted um, end up happening instead. So it's kind of striking that this company is called Pandora in the end. It is such a fitting name in that type of way. When in all these different directions, they fought all these battles they probably never would have thought. And and they helped spark off this, multi-billion dollar industry of on-demand music streaming that they're not necessarily a part of. Right. Well, technically they are, but I mean more the broader influence of things. And I guess similarly with that name too, maybe it's not too surprising that there's also a jewelry company that also had a similar rise and fall (laughs) that tracked around this same time. That'll be the next episode of Capital Notch. How Pandora bracelets just didn't quite maintain its 3-1 lead in jewelry. (laughs) Right. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode please share it with a friend send it to one or two people you think would really get value out of listening to this episode and while you're at it if you could rate and review the show that would be great rate the podcast on apple Podcasts. rate the podcast on spotify rate the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts that helps make sure that the word gets out about trapital and what we're building here Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time.